Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. My name is Patrick Rose and I'm a first year MBA at MIT Sloan and it is my pleasure to present this next panel, Soccer Analytics, The Beautiful Game Meets the Analytics Edge. Our panelists for today are Vosa Debode from AFC IX, Devin Pluler, Director of uh, Analytics at Toronto FC, Ted Knudsen, CEO and owner at um, Statsbomb, Tyler Heaps, Director of Sporting Analytics for the US Soccer Federation, and the panel will be moderated by Grant Wall, Senior Writer at Sports Illustrated. And um, as mentioned at, as prior panels, this panel will be 45 minutes long, and there will be 10 minutes for Q&A. And feel free to write those Twitter questions with the hashtag SoccerEdge. And with that, I'll turn it over to Grant. Welcome, everyone. Quick question for you, Patrick, before you leave the stage. Um, when those questions come in, is there something I should do with that? OK, thank you. Uh, we have a really great panel here. Um, and want to start off just by asking each one of you if you could give uh, just an explanation of, of what do you do in your job? Bolsa. Perfect. So, Fulsa de Boda, I'm head of sports science and data analytics at, uh, at IOX. Um, and I joined the club in 2011. And back then, we started with the biomechanics lab and uh, player tracking. So, it was mainly uh, matches and uh, training sessions. And back then, it was a lot more on the physical side and the, um, the technical performance. And in the last years, it grew to a department which is kind of a knowledge center within the club. Um, and helps with decision making on player performance. So that can be everything from player recruitment, um, technical analysis, uh, uh, tactical analysis, um, or just questions on we hired a throw-in coach. Was that a good or a bad idea? <laughs> so just to give you a, a short example. I'm Devin. Um, I, I ran the analytics department at uh, Toronto FC. Uh, currently, you know, uh, I'm, I'm responsible for bringing data science into kind of any sort of part of the on-field stuff as possible. So that ranges from, you know, opposition analysis to player recruitment to, um, you know, player valuation to, um, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. Um, you know, my background's largely in computer science. You know, I handle all the various sort of data feeds that, that come into our, our organization, um, you know, warehouse process model, um, all, all that sort of stuff, uh, and turn them into kind of soccer actionable insights. Um, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. My name's Ted Knudsen. I'm the CEO of Statsbomb, uh, formerly of Brentford and Mitchelland, and then before that of the professional gambling world. Uh, at Statsbomb, you know, my job is to help us you know, discover and create better data for all of the teams to use here. Uh, also in like the gambling and media space, we create tools that basically take data and, and help compress it into what we call actionable insight, which in, in the football world, you, just, you can't just dump data on it. Like they need a little bit of help at this point. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, Tyler Heaps, Director of Sporting Analytics at US Soccer, um, oversee data and video analysis across our federation. Uh, that includes our senior national teams as well as uh, the 14 youth teams and extended national teams. Um, making sure that our coaches have uh, the technology and the infrastructure that they need to, to do their lives efficiently um, and just provide insights wherever we can. So looking at research and innovation and, and how we can help them uh, do their 
do their job uh, better, um, as well as support them where we can. One thing that came up on the call we had last week was that each one of these panelists has won a title uh, or more recently, uh, which uh, is impressive. Um, I, I, want, I want to ask you about real-life examples, uh, real-life stories about things you guys have done that had an impact in something that, you know, if these folks are soccer fans, uh, would register with, with them. Come on, you, your, your most recent title. Is All right, uh, I'll start. So just a simple example, just using data, I think, in our, in our uh, environments for the World Cup. Obviously, we had a, a little bit of a disappointment in the last Olympics on the women's side. So heading into France, we wanted to make sure that we did everything possible from a penalty standpoint to make sure we were as prepared as possible. And I'm, I'm sure um, if there's any England fans out there, they're probably doing the exact same thing on their end to make sure that, uh, that this goes their way. But really providing visuals for the players, but also doing extensive historical analysis on penalties. How, how are they taken? Where are they taken? Really challenging our players to eliminate the goalkeeper. What do those locations look like when you're eliminating the goalkeeper? Um, and then from an opposition standpoint, we want to know any and everything about every player that we may play against. And so luckily we had the, uh, the luxury of having quite a few penalties in the World Cup. Um, converting them is a good thing as well. So Megan Rapinoe, after she made the two against Spain, walked into the uh, dinner room after and said, that was in the green, as essentially like looking at our chart to eliminate the goalkeepers in the green. And so that shows you that she was well aware of what she was trying to do, um, which is great. And then obviously Alyssa Nair's penalty save against England, that exact penalty was hit um, in the FA Cup uh, by Steph Houghton. So Alyssa knew exactly where she was going to go. Arm was the exact same and everything like that. So that's one example, I think, of how we, we utilize that. Um, we do a lot just in terms of preparing our coaches and making sure they're well aware of what's happening. So if we are getting to certain areas in the field or if we're finishing from certain spots, how can we emulate that in training to make sure that we're better from there? So if there's specific areas in the field or if we're creating chances specific ways um, through trends and looking at data, how can we emulate that in training so our players are, are as prepared as possible whenever they get to that situation? I wish you'd been in the interview room after that game. I would have been good for my story to know that. Um, Ted. Uh, I mean, it's fairly natural for me to say set pieces, but I think uh, you know that was quite a while ago. We still work with some teams to to do that because it's it's kind of an, an undiscovered bit of, of of football in a lot of ways in terms of coaching. But I think on the data side, like we we just started to listen to to coaches talk about like what was missing. Like your your data doesn't show me this. Like it's sort of the Bob Bradley. I like I like to grumble, you know, because Bob's always fun that way. But um, so we we started listening to them, and and like so for example, some point Liverpool are going to have to replace Roberto Firmino. Roto Firmino has a very unique skill set. And that skill set often involves being defensively uh, mobile as a forward. And in traditional data, you don't have things called pressure. So we started collecting that. And now when Liverpool need to replace this guy, not only do they, are they able to credit what Firmino is doing more and more often, but they're also able to go out into the whole worldwide data set, look at about twice as much data as anywhere else, and say, this is what this guy does. Who can we find that looks similar to him? And we're seeing that happen more and more around the world as clubs sort of get switched on to the American idea of Moneyball, how do we use it for recruitment better? And that was something that we wanted to, to start plugging into the data because we felt like the, the traditional ways just weren't quite good enough. Um, Devin, I find it interesting that Seattle and Toronto have been in three of the last four MLS Cup finals, and you, Toronto, and Seattle have the two most advanced analytics departments in Major League Soccer. Um, is there anything that you would mention? Um, 
Um, well, I hope it's not a coincidence, uh, but I'm not sure that we have a sufficient sample size to actually really be able to uh, you know, say that uh, confidently. Uh, no, I, I do think that um, you know we've been um, you know very lucky to have a large you know, analytics investment, uh, both myself and, and, and Ravi in, in Seattle. Um, and you know, I, I think that the you know we're very much setting the the example for the league in, in a lot of ways, right? Um, you know, and, and you you know. Just, just in terms of the, um, you know, not just the results that we've we've got, but also kind of the seniority that we've kind of grown inside of the clubs, and the, you know, uh, how much sort of sway we have um, with with certain decisions and strategy and things like that, right? Um, so, you know, I think you know, as as our league kind of continues to make large investments in this, right? You know, uh, we hope to lead the way. We hope to continue to lead the way. We hope to meet each other in as many MLS Cup finals as, as possible in the next couple of years. Fosa, is there any sort of real-life examples with Ajax that you might cite? I have two. One is a simple example, I think, but to most people that's most appealing because it has to do with the Real Madrid game. Um, and that's one I think um, people say, yeah, yeah, you have a big analytics department and you can do all this stuff, but sometimes simple analytics can help with, with big questions. And this is one I think every um, video analyst with a little bit of data knowledge can do. And this was... When we played against Real Madrid in the first game, we compared that game to how they played to all, the other, all their other opponents in the pool phase. And what we saw is that actually we're doing a great job on um, uh, pre um, preventing them to come on, our, uh, on their final third, um, preventing them from uh, having many um, entries into our 16-meter area. On the same time, we um, made them fight a lot more duels in their own 60-meter area. So we were doing a lot of things a lot better than their earlier opponents. Um, but there was one thing that stood out, and that was they entered our 16-meter area only 12 times. They scored twice. And we entered their 16-meter areas 36 times, and we only scored once. So that was something that is sort of against all odds if you look at um, uh, normal data analysis and, and your chances there. So except from saying, okay, maybe that's under pressure because it's a big game, so things go wrong there, um, then you can go into your video footage and see what, what's actually happening there. And we saw two interesting things. One was some players under pressure just stop looking, like they only look and focus at the ball and the goal. Uh, where others still do that quite well. Um, but other players, they try to perform at 100%, which usually um, is related to they try to shoot too fast or, or they, they run too fast and like make the shot too fast, which makes it less accurate than when they would do it like at their normal 80% of their maximum capacity. So we, we just wanted to know what happens under pressure. And we try to, from this data, um, look into what was actually happening with these players. And another one is, and that's a little bit more complex, was there was a season where um, we always have, tend to have a lot of corners. Um, and there was a season when there was a feeling that this corner didn't really work out well. So then I analyzed that actually only 2% of our corners ended in a shot at goal. And 16% of the time, it ended up in the next ball moment being our opponents being in our 16-meter area. Now, they don't get there very often within our own league, so that was probably their biggest chance of, uh, of um, sort of attacking us. So those kind of things you can point out really easily with data, and, and they make sense to coaches, like, wow, this is really more of a threat to us than actually an opportunity to score. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask all of you guys about is not just what you 
have done in the past, but what you see happening in the future and in even the near future about, that you're excited about with what you're doing? And, and what stands out in that regard to you guys? Um, I would totally say 3D tracking from video. That would be, I think, in the near future, something that opens up a complete new data set and options. Um, so think about, he did the shot wrong, but is it because he did it with the wrong foot or to the wrong foot of his uh, teammate? Or is it that players that have more hip rotation tend to get more injuries? Um, what's the orientation of a player anyway? Something we need in analytics. Um, where is he looking compared to where his body's moving? Those kind of questions, um, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll, we will be able to answer in the future if that, that, that happens. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. Body tracking is huge. Any sort of pose estimation is, is definitely the, the, uh, the future, but also the ability to do that on, on broadcast data, right? You know, I, I think you know, in the, the stats um, presentation, um, you know, downstairs uh, you know, earlier today, we, you know, they were talking a lot about uh, the importance of, you know, uh, essentially, you know, augmented event data, right? We can't, um, we can't get tracking data for you know, any sort of league that we're recruiting from, right? For various reasons, right? Um, so how do we create better event data, right? How do we automate the collection of that? How do we get it cheaper? How do we do it from you know, wider ranges of quality on video and things like that? And just with the advances kind of in, you know, in computer vision software right now in terms of libraries, um, it's, it's moving so fast, uh, faster than I've ever seen it. And the ability for anybody at this point to kind of roll their own um, you know, you know, uh, you know player, player tracking system, Ted may not like that idea. No, no, that's um, fine. Is, I, you it, might own a data company soon. Right. Uh, no, it, it's just the, the, the barrier of entry is, is reducing really fast, right? Uh, which is, you know, opening the doors for a lot of really exciting startups and putting pressure on some other startups to, you know, to innovate even more, right? Yeah, I, I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we get better and how do we produce better stuff for you guys? We talk to you regularly, like, it's, it's part of the fun but it's also like important as, as part of our business. So like, it's, it's a really simple one. Like, nobody knows the, how the XYZ value, the, the actual Z value, uh, impacts a shot. So we started collecting that called shot impact height. And we're just now about to pass like 110,000 shots off of that. And because our, our goal model, our expected goals model is more complex, we've got like where the goalkeeper is and where the defenders are. Like we need that level of information in order to figure out like does it actually impact it. It's a sense that, you know, instinctively, we're pretty sure, right? You know, if you've got a six foot header versus an eight foot header, you're probably more likely to make better contact on that. And so we think about how do we take away more proxies that exist in older event data and how do we make that explicit? And then the other thing we think about is how do we give you more context every single time an action happens and you know, using a lot of broadcast uh, video to then create computer vision elements off of it and then plug that into models. And the modeling bit is where like, the quality comes. So like rolling your own, but rolling your own in a way that you make sure that it's right. Yeah. And also, like productizing that is super hard too. Like, I can definitely roll my own in, in Python in a, in a weekend, but like actually be able to deliver thousands of games is, is a huge problem. You know, and, and and to your coaches in a way that they're okay with it, which is also a huge problem. Yeah, I think that the biggest thing that the answer to that question is more data, right? We take we'll take more data from what's happening off the ball, what's happening with their body shape, et cetera. But then it's how can clubs now ingest this information and actually turn it into actionable insight? So how can you then have a conversation with the coach about some, whether it's a fancy new model or whether it's just different ideas 
um, to be able to go to them and sit there and say, hey, this is what we got out of this now, and whether it's turning it into video for them to, to properly analyze the game and to do it quicker in a, in a similar sense. And so I think that at the end of the day, yes, more data is great, but now it's a matter of, okay, how do a club or a federation take this in-house and now start to utilize it to impact what's happening on a day-to-day -day environment as opposed to um, some of the other things that could be done. And you obviously work for a federation. You guys work for clubs. You work with both. How is that relationship developing between clubs and federations? Could be better. <laughs> um, I think we have them in-house most of the time, right? So we work on their fitness. We work on um, their skills. And then there's a point when you hand them over to the national team. Um, and they should be able to use that fitness and those skills. And uh, we get them back after a while. And of course, we're curious what happened in that period. So I think like that transition between the clubs and the national team is very important. And data can be like a big source of, uh, yeah, to answer your questions on the status of a player. Um, but at this stage, like every club collects different data. Every federation likes it in a different format which means that most of our squad will be away during national periods. And I have to like uh, rewrite my format or just write my format and put it uh, in all the um, uh, like email or whatever. We still not really um, agree on that. So there's all different ways and forms to sort of transfer the data. And there's not like one uniform platform where you can upload in the same way. And we talk the same language. We all sometimes use they borrow them. Bands. They borrow a player, they return them broken, which is yeah. a problem. <laughs> so it would be really helpful if there was like a platform that could be sort of um, help clubs and, uh, and federations to, um, yeah, to hand the data to each other in a uniform way. We can, and, and I think the, the standardization is, is a clear answer here, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. how do we agree on, you know, I, I, obviously, you know, we want to be using the same, you know, it, it's not realistic that, you know, you know, we use Catapult, for example, for, you know, our, our in-practice stuff. I'm sure the different national teams that our players go to use different things, right? That, that information comes back to us, uh, you know, in a different format than what we're used to, right? How do we do that? You know, um, obviously, it's a, it's a huge pain in the neck. Right? But if we can lobby as, as clubs and federations, maybe to FIFA, to create standards for these sort of things, mm. it's going to, um, I think, make players healthier. It's going to reduce an incredible amount of headaches for the clubs and the national teams. Uh, I think the problem is that none of the, the data providers are interested in doing that um, because they all want to lock you into their own sort of proprietary, proprietary data formats, right, or how they deliver it, right? Because once that company is, is delivering that data to you in that format and you've been receiving that for X number of years and you've built systems around that, you know, there's a, you know, even if a better competitor comes all around, it's hard to switch to that because you don't want to rebuild all your systems, right? But if we force and we lobby for, you know, standardization on these sort of things, it can cause a lot of, you know, you know relieve a lot of headaches. Now, I'm curious kind of from like the, you know, the data provider perspective, like, do you want standardization? Because I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of time. To be honestly, like, we want to give you what you want for the most part. And, and I think we go out of our way to do that. We've, we've converted to a couple of different file formats that are not inherent in ours, but we deliver that, uh, you know, to be ingested in, like, video engines and stuff like that. So you can put that alongside of it. Uh, for us, like, uh, we kind of sit in between a lot of this. And uh, on the Federation side, we tend to do more education stuff. Like, we've mm -hmm. built courses that are now being used um, you know, in part by some of the FAs, and some of the FAs have taken uh, StatsBomb IQ and they're using it in their coach training uh, for like UA for Pro licenses and stuff like that, which is like, it's, it feels great because you know, I think the, 
congratulations to the, those FAs seeing that this is kind of the future and we want them to, to start as we're giving them licenses to, to understand that this is what you're starting to see more and more in the club space. And in the club space, you know, like we actually, uh, so not everybody is as far along as you guys are, like everybody on the stage has worked for quite a while, but there's a whole generation of kids that are coming along. And so we built um, educational series like on intro to analytics, and then we built a set pieces course, and we also built uh, a player evaluation course that's supposed to come up pretty soon that, um, you know, it, it helps that generation get on board. We give away our primers and free data to help that as well. So for us, like, you know, we want to give you what you want, but we also want to help prepare those new kids and, and the next generation to, to hit the ground running. From a federation perspective, how do you see that working with clubs and, and what you do? Yeah, I think the biggest thing there is communication. I think at, at the end of the day, we want our players, when they come in, to be as healthy as possible, and we want to return them as healthy as possible because if they're in the first team, we want them to stay in the first team, and if they're one of our core players, obviously we want them to come in the core players. So a lot of that is communication with the clubs, as you said. It's a disaster on our end, too, getting 23 different data sets or 22, 21, because some clubs may not be wearing GPS, physical monitoring system. But for us, it's big because if we know what the player has done in the last X amount of weeks, we can then cater their cadence and how we start to train them. So on the first day, everyone's not going to train the same because one of our players is coming from London um, and may have played on Sunday. One of our players may have not played at all on the weekend. Um, so it's a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces there, but the biggest thing for us is communication and trying to work with clubs to say, okay, how are we going to get this delivered? Can we get it delivered consistently? Um, we have a little bit of a luxury on the women's side because the NWSL, obviously they're all on the same platform as us and we get that all ingested. Um, and as, as well on the youth side, we've done a, a big deal in GPS providers, obviously, to allow us to collect our DA data. So we have a little bit of idea of what those players are coming in at, which um, is probably a little bit unique, but also a good initiative for us to try to figure out, okay, how can we start to move this thing forward? And how can we make sure that when a player comes in on Monday, they return on Monday and they're the same player that they were? Got it. Um, I want to, I guess, start with Devin on this one, because you were part of this announcement last week that MLS made about, uh, with Second Spectrum, about um, what they're doing with live tracking and information in games. Can you explain like what that is and, and yeah. your role in it? Um, yeah, so, you know, the, uh, you know, we've been searching for a, you know, a, a creative, you know, tracking solution uh, for, for a long time for Major League Soccer, right? Um, and you know, you know, through a through a series of evaluating a lot of different you know different providers, uh, and, and I think it was a very hard decision uh, for the decision makers. Uh, you know, eventually we decided on you know Second Spectrum to be you know the official data you know tracking provider for uh, Major Soccer. I, I hope I got that tagline exactly right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think I did. Um, the lawyers will be out there soon. But you know, essentially, what Second Spectrum provides um, is you know. Um, uh, Every single player's X and Y uh, location on the field, uh, 25 times per second, right? Uh, as well as various sort of video solutions as well. Uh, this is the same tool that's used in the, uh, in the NBA, right? And you know, um, it's uh, super high resolution stuff. Um, it, it's going to be really interesting to kind of see which clubs are able to um, use it quickly, right? Um, you know. This is, you know, when we're looking at, you know, an, uh, an Opta event feed or a StatsBomb event feed, we're looking at, you know, two or 3,000 events per game, right? Or a single game of, you know, uh, tracking data is millions of data points per game, right? So it's a whole different kind of scale. It requires a whole different level of, um, you know, kind of engineering, data warehousing. Um, so, um, you know, I, I know that we've got some stuff in place, um, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how 
Um, you know, other, other clubs around uh, the league are, are, are starting to use it. Um, I think it's going to make a large difference in sort of the media angle as well, right? Um, because you can start to tell really interesting stories. Uh, but again, the media companies are still going to you know, have the same sort of problem. They need to build infrastructure as well, right? Um, so it, it's a very exciting time. I, I think you know this sort of data changed the NBA, and I think it's not unreasonable to think that it will change our game as well. Uh, but it will take some time, and it'll take some investment, and uh, hopefully we can lead the way a bit on it. So, and other. Countries, other leagues are obviously using either this stuff or similar stuff. Yeah, like similar system that uh, is also a league-wide deal. So we get also the, all the tracking data, events, okay. and, uh, and video. And did you get any pushback sort of when negotiating those deals from sort of the clubs that are less uh, financially invested in this? Because I know I can tell you anecdotally, like there was one Premier League club that always refused to allow tracking data from their stadium to be shared until the league forced that because they didn't want to invest in them themselves. And so they're like, no, 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 we, they, we're not going to share that bit. And it was actually quite frustrating for the teams that, that had to play against them. Well, I think you already touched on the subject, but there's different levels of analysis at clubs. Like some clubs do none, and some clubs do a lot with it. So. It wasn't that everyone was buying it immediately, but I think in the end, um, everyone sort of agreed that this was a step forward that everyone wanted to make. Um, but yeah, it's still like some just only have like the pre-made reports and others will use like the raw data during the game. Um, and we just uh, divided the costs by the ranking of the club of that moment. So that helped a little bit with the, with the lower ranked clubs. That's interesting. Um, Devin, you mentioned NBA uh, and, and sort of the analytics revolution and how that's, we've seen very clearly with teams like the Houston Rockets and, and Daryl Morey obviously organizes this conference, um, you know, how the game fundamentally looks different as a result. For, for all of you guys, like, is, is there any chance in soccer we might see something similar like a revel, like the game look completely different, or any aspect of the sport due to analytics. I think so, right? I mean, you look at every single, you know, it's hard to identify exactly what kind of the soccer parable is to, you know, the, the corner three and the dunk, right? But I think what you can kind of look at across all the different sports is that largely the the push from analytics has been to be more aggressive, right? The shift in baseball. The, the corner threes and the and the dunks, the going for it more frequently on fourth down, right? What is what is you know what is the soccer um, sort of uh, you know what what is more aggressive? And and I think it's pressing, right? And I think you're you're starting to see a better understanding uh, through this sort of data, um, you know what is the, the value of my position uh, and my shape versus where the ball is, right? Um, and, and not just in terms of like when I have the ball is like. How, how advantageous is my shape uh, given what the opponent has uh, thrown at me as well? Uh, and these are all kinds of questions that you couldn't answer before, before tracking data, right? Um, so that's, that's super exciting. I, I think it's going to also allow clubs to you know, start to um, better quantify their style of play internally as well, right? Um, event data is great. It is the foundation for uh, player recruitments. Um, but it is limited in, in some ways, right? Um, and I think being able to better, you know, identify um, styles of play uh, in terms of off-ball movement and things like that, I, I think that it, it's potentially a way for clubs to kind of um, better understand themselves. In but also to compare levels, I think, because if I look, if I look at our own league, um, I see very different statistics sometimes from what I see when we play Champions League. 
So for example, a simple one, if you take a shot from outside the 16 meter area, within our own league, you still have like a fair chance of 7% that, that, you, that you score it, at least when it's like within the goal. Um, but if you try that in Champions League, it, it goes down to like two, one and a half, two percent. So apparently the tactics that you do in your own league don't always work at a higher level. And I think that those kind of things to point that out before you actually go enter that level really helps you in deciding how you're going to play. I, I think you're probably not going to see every single shot taken from six yards out. You're probably not going to see all shots from outside the box go away. But in terms of efficiency and the way people are approaching games, I think it's going to be quite a bit different. I think you saw it in Russia. You saw it um, in France. The 4-4-2 low block is back Like in certain teams. That's just the way teams start to envision how they're going to uh, press out of it. Like There's just different ways now to play. And I think the efficiency, as well as how teams are now starting to look at their, their training, right? They're looking at different areas where they can get an advantage. Set pieces is a great example. If you can have an opportunity to bring everybody forward, um, and, and hopefully ending the shot, maybe that's a better chance of breaking a team down in a low block. Are we allowed to talk about that? <laughs> I, I, I sent him a message, uh, like something that I recognize as a wrinkle that, that we like uh, from the Women's World Cup game against England, and I was like, look at this, look at they just missed this. Yeah. And he's like, shh, don't say anything. Tournament's not over yet. But I, I mean, set pieces break the game. Like, they just fundamentally do. It's, it's the one bit of the game that is completely... But if you take away the concept of set pieces and you do it on restart, Restarts are the thing that is completely underinvested by almost every coaching group out there. And Liverpool took a bunch of flack about throwing coaches. And it's interesting that Thomas does not do like the long throw stuff because like I know that Gomez is capable and it's possible that there are other players that are capable on that on that squad. Like I absolutely believe that in the next 10 to 15 years you will see a revolution in the way that teams handle throw-ins because it breaks it in two ways. First of all, it breaks it with the fact that you know, you're using your hands. That's great, right? And as players get better developed with this skill set, like you can start to activate fast breaks much faster, which is another great thing. And then there's one more thing that we teach in our course, which is basically, what's the difference between a corner and when a ball is taken and a throw in? And the answer is, you look down when you strike the ball in a corner, you get to look up the entire time on a throw in. So you get to have a much better field of vision as to what is open and what is not. I view this as like NFL style plays. And you know, we've, some, we've seen some stuff from Liverpool that just you know, dramatically improved their ability to retain the ball because throw-ins are like the most pressable moment on the pitch. Like everything is condensed. You can't get the ball across the pitch. There's no 60, 70 meters type stuff. You're looking at you know, a maximum of usually 20 meters. Like that's super pressable. We care a lot about pressing. So this whole restart element where you know, people get their head up, you start to be able to, to chuck the ball into the middle of the pitch, which is more valuable. Like that will start to change. And I think that along with, we've already seen shots get closer, right? Like that, since expected goals, like we are just seeing that naturally happen almost by osmosis or, you know, intentionally happen. But I think that the set piece and the restart revolution is the next thing to come. I think that restarts is a great example, not only from an attacking standpoint, but from a defending, as you said. I mean, in France, we said, what are we the best in the world at? We're the best transition team in the world. So how can we turn the game into a transition moment? And one of it is off of throwing. Yep. If a team is sitting in a low block, they're very difficult to break down. However, on an attacking or on a, an attacking throw-in for the other team, they're going to go out of shape. They're going to shift. They're going to do different things. How can we turn them over immediately? Can we turn it into a three v three situation? So we looked heavily at that through event data, through tracking data, through video to say, okay, how can we turn this team over to make sure that we can create a moment where we're the best in the world? At? Yeah, they have to underload or overload, and like that's that's a choice that you get to to exploit every single time. Yeah, and you can actually with the data you can check on those choices. Yeah. You can actually 
review whether that was successful or not. And you start seeing teams now throw the ball in and it's a half volley across the other side of the field because there's probably an overload over there. So how can we get the ball to the other side of the field as fast as possible because on the throw and they're all coming? Well, and it's hard to control. You know, like we see the best players in the world like get pressed, pressed into oblivion in their own third. And these are great players, but it just tells you that that particular skill is super difficult. Maybe don't do the half volley though. You know, you yeah. probably want to have some control on that. <laughs> It's going to be really interesting to also see how this uh, new changes to the goal kick rule changes to some of the stuff as well, right? Um, just being able to uh, essentially dribble the ball out of your, your 18 now uh, with, you know, with a, you know, a short pass from your goalkeeper to your, your center back, right? So you, you suddenly have 20 yards of space to work with, right? It's going to allow, um, I, I think, more kind of set routines and easier buildups, uh, more, you know, um, more specific kind of styles of, you know, sort of buildup, right? It's, it's going to be quite interesting to kind of see. I, I bet you that you'll see that, you know, you know, a possession that starts from a goal kick, I'm sure, has a, you know, less than a 1% chance of uh, resulting in a goal. I'm sure the changes to the goal kick rule will increase that just because you can be more deliberate in how you approach it. I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't mention Daryl and Launch and Squish, though. You know, like, <laughs> Launch and Squish from last year's panel, like, Daryl is all on that. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the revolution. Like, football's just waiting. Where you at, Daryl? You in here? Come on. <laughs> um, it, it seems like cer certain clubs now are really starting to invest more and more. Certain clubs, other clubs are just getting started um, in, in data analysis. Like, for, for your company, Ted, like, how do you approach that and in, in what you do to... Um, to work with clubs. Yeah, so the, like, there's really two tracks, and I think that we learned a lot from coming to conferences like this and talking to the people on the American sports. Uh, one track is that we want to give, uh, you know, we, we work with clubs all the way down to League Two in England, and we've worked with some Dutch second division clubs, and so we work with tiny ones, and obviously we work with some of the biggest clubs in the world, um, and, uh, and, and a new one, right? Yeah. And, and because of that, like, they all have different levels of investment and people. We had one club that, that basically said, we would like to actually just use your software product that you put on top of the data instead of hiring an extra analyst. Because we think that it's going to make everybody more productive and that's valuable to us. So we have to basically build a set of tools that are easy to understand and give them insight for like recruitment, uh, opposition analysis. We'll be adding video at, at some point in the future as well. So that it's all tied together. So that's one way. But then the other way is that we want to give teams that have a bigger budget the ability to take the raw data and invest in proprietary stuff that they feel comfortable they can model on because the quality is there, but they also get a chance to create their own stuff that they then don't have to share with everybody else. So like that's very much the, the two tracks that we go on. And I think, you know, as as things develop, we'll see it work more like American sports where like everybody's got, you know, more of a proprietary side, but you still have league data providers, right? So like that, that's never gonna go away. But um, right now, like we spend an awful lot of time if nothing else, giving them the building blocks so that when you inherit it, you don't have to spend like three years coding stuff. Like most of it's already there for you and then you get to run. You don't have to start by walking. Um, starting in the analytics department now is a lot easier than it was five or six years ago, right? You know, when I first started in Toronto, essentially all I could do was, you know, buy F24 data from Opta, uh, build our own models uh, by hand from scratch. My sample size was limited to essentially anything I could purchase, right? Uh, or now, you know, look at all the, you know, sort of augmented data feeds that, you know, Opta is uh, delivering. And, you know, these guys, you know, who, who are just starting to use now, it's that's why I was like, I don't need to rebuild my own, you know, expected goals model. I'm just going to use theirs because they have 
more data than I'm buying, um, and it's you know they you know it's it's going to save me a ton of time, right? And and you're starting to see that sort of stuff play out with how different clubs are starting their analytics departments, right? That first hire isn't quite as technical maybe as I am, right? Now it's actually someone who understands the industry really well and knows the different tools that are available in the markets. Um, and, and I think that sort of shift is accelerating um, the, the, you know. The possibilities. Possibilities, yeah. sure. Yeah. Or you can hire particle physicists, as some still do. Yeah. Do you guys have particle physicists on staff, like Liverpool? <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Wow. Man, so lucky. <laughs> um, we're starting to see some situations where head coaches, when they take a new job, are taking their top analysts or more with them. Um, that happened with Jesse Marsh uh, when he left, uh, when he went to Salzburg, he had his old New York Red Bulls uh, analyst. Um, are we starting to see analysts get really valued more in a sense, not just by head coaches, but in terms of salaries and, and things like that? Mm. Uh, well, what I find interesting is that the first few years when I started this job, I always felt like I had to promote what I was doing and like explain that it could add some value. Where now, when most coaches or assistant coaches leave, I still have contact with them and they ask me for analysis every now and then, which I unfortunately cannot do when they are hired by a different club. But they do say that they sort of, once they're used to um, this sort of information, they will miss it if it gets pulled away when they go somewhere else. So I can see that, that now they sort of used to rely on it more, then it, you, it will also be um, hard when you have to leave that behind. I think that we're seeing more investment from clubs too. Like we've kind of been predicting this for a while. You know, we talk amongst ourselves and you're seeing you know, some of the giants like start to awake from their slumber. You know, Manchester United, uh, David Ornstein had a story this week about how they're in the process of hiring. I don't know how it's an eight-person team, because I'm not exactly sure. Like, they have to hire one person. Anyway, uh, <laughs> like, you know, but they, they're definitely finally investing in that. Um, but on the coaching side, I think that those people are part of the brain trust. And the thing that uh, has been missing from the game, and still is very much missing, is that coach-analyst rule. That, like, you know, you guys all sort of, like, you're... You weren't initially connected to the sport, like you obviously are deeply connected to the sport as, as well as you, and you're able to talk in a way that those coaches start to trust, they, you build a relationship, and, and yeah, they start to be basically you know, an assistant coach that becomes part of the staff. That will happen a lot more. Yeah, I, think, I think the biggest thing is, one, being able to talk that language in that analyst role, but also the ability to say when a head coach is sitting in a room and says, what happens every time they overload us on the right-hand side? The analyst now has the ability to pull up video from the last 10 games within five, 10 minutes. And all of a sudden now you're not just making hypothetical thoughts about it with your assistant coaches, you're now looking at it on the video screen. And so that becomes really valuable for not only the coach, the head coach, but also everybody else that's in the room with them. So I think the ability and the turnaround time and the efficiency that the analyst is starting to um, provide uh, to this, especially from a federation standpoint, we don't have the luxury of having weeks in between games at a time whenever we get into these camp environments. So how quickly can you turn around information and how quickly can you present actionable insights to the team? I think the analyst role is becoming more and more needed in this situation as opposed to people who are largely just coaching. That's not to downgrade coaches at all, but just the ability to kind of add a different perspective and to add that context. Well, and do you think that coaches are becoming better at using information? Yeah, sure. And that, that plays into the whole thing where like they, they get used to it, they're comfortable with it, the analyst has value, 
and they definitely like having it because it helps them you know, construct better game plans. For sure. I, I think something that we've seen, and, and one way that I like to kind of evaluate um, you know, success in my role is essentially the sophistication of questions that you get over the years, right? You know, we look back you know, five years ago, you know, the questions are like, you know, Devin, what is our record when we you know, complete at least this many passes? Where now the questions are going to be like, you know, that, that, that you can field you know, pretty regularly, or like, you know, are, you know, when we win the ball in this sort of situation, are we you know, more efficient or less efficient than league average in terms of generating dangerous opportunities on goal, right? And that shows a lot of things from the coaches. You know, not just, you know, we, we understand that this you know, first sort of example isn't really that meaningful, but also shows an understanding of like, what the underlying data is. It understands what are the raw resources that the analysts are using with um, that I've been really impressed with. Um, and it's, uh, I, I can't imagine that you know, that sort of, you know, the velocity that, you know, coaches are, you know, getting familiar and comfortable with this stuff will, will slow down. Um, Tyler, you were with the U.S. Women's National Team yesterday. They played England. They beat them. You go from here to New York where their next game is. What will you be doing with the team in terms of, especially in terms of, like, in-game stuff? Yeah, I think the technology and that we're allowed to have now helps quite a bit. So the ability to have video on the bench now is a game changer in terms of you no longer have the days of an assistant coach comes and sits up top and then runs down the stands at 15 minutes and goes and tells and whispers in the ear of the other coaches what they're doing. I mean, now you're connected to any and everybody that you want to be connected to in the stadium. You have a video screen on, on the bench that we do that is showing the game. We have another one that we're clipping stuff to show at halftime to players and to, and to the team member. We can go straight into the locker room we can put it together. There's teams out there I know that have touchscreens. We unfortunately don't have traveling capabilities of having a, a, a touchscreen, but you can do all that analysis now and turn it around really quickly. And so this, I think, is when we talk about competitive advantage, it's how, how quickly and how meaningful can you make that information in that short amount of time. I and mean, the amount of information I think that's being given to players at halftime is probably more than it's ever been, strictly mm -hmm. because of that technology that's out there. Um, so trying to provide the experts that are on the field with as much information as they need, but also trying to condense it in a way that you can make effective change in that 15-minute increment to then go and implement that in the second half. Are you guys able to do that as well, or how does that work? Um, kind of similar, actually, to what you say. Um, it's not in all stadiums. The infrastructure is that good, so it really depends on where we're going. But, yeah, we're definitely going towards that situation more and more. Yeah, I think, you know, what was really interesting for me um, is, I guess, you know, last year, uh, our primary video analyst left, and I found myself in kind of this um, fortunate slash unfortunate situation that I really was the only guy who really knew how to use our video software to the level that was required to be able, you know, actually contribute stuff at halftime. So for a while, I was, I was traveling with a team and essentially was our, our video analyst for a while, right? And being in the locker room at halftime, uh, it really gave me uh, quite a different uh, perspective in terms of the chaos, right? So for the years past, I had been, you know, sort of producing different, you know, uh, you know analytics reports from, from live data, right, that were, you know, essentially printed out and, and left in the coach's, coach's office, right? And while I think that those things are useful, I, I really, I'm not sure now having been in the chaos that is halftime, that they're ever really actually be able to use that information that, that well, right? Like, if you need to look at that for more than 30 seconds, that's way too much time, right? Um, so it really comes down to, you know, yes, you need to, you know, find the best ways to, um, you know, the, the best technology 
technology in terms of delivering that information at speed, but also you need to be very careful on how you're delivering it and what you're delivering. Yeah, in my opinion, just like a message saying this displayer is performing a lot worse on this and this parameter than we're, we usually see is more powerful than all these stats or, or reports. And I think you touched on a very interesting point. What I see in many of the big clubs is that there's still quite some distance between the analytics staff and the coaching staff. Um, so they're both a little bit on two islands and they don't really communicate that well. So many analysts come up with like beautiful reports that would look really nice in like a scientific presentation but it doesn't really make sense to, to, the, to the trainers. And I think that that communication between preferably your coaching staff, your performance staff, and your analyst is very, very important for how the data will be handled and, and implemented. So if you're an analyst and you're doing great stuff like up in your room, but you have no clue what's going on in the dressing room or no clue what's going on in the, in the trainer's room, then then I can probably tell that most of your analysis is useless. The ivory tower problem, where it yes. still exists, but sometimes that wall is intentional from the coaching side, and sometimes it's just like a failure communication. Can I ask Tyler a question? We Go had, for it. We, we had something come to us um, in, in the last couple of months that was a first for me. So we had a federation come, and they wanted to have access to like all of the leagues that their players in the selection process would be involved in, so that they could then help with their Euro selection. And it's, it's, it's quite a significant thing. I think the U.S. might be as dispersed as like almost anybody in the entire world, and you also get the, the kids that are like multinationals that, that sort of surface up. Like, do you use much data on that, and is it hard to track? We try to, but th at the end of the day, our men's national team pool right now is very young, and some are playing in the first team, some ones at IX, but we also have a lot. We also have two in the youth system at IX, which is very hard to, one, find a data provider that covers if you guys want to do that. Um, <laughs> and then, two, even just find what minutes they're playing. And obviously, we're in contact with these guys, so we can figure that aspect out. But just trying to monitor, okay, what, what type of minutes are our players playing? Because obviously, under the, under, under the assumption that to get to the senior national team, you want these players playing first team minutes, first team minutes. But I think they're all in environments that are allowing them to start to grow. So. We have external sources that we obviously are taking in daily to try to figure out who's playing, when are they playing, what team are they playing with, um, so that we can start those conversations. The guys that are in the MLS, it's a whole lot easier, but then there's also guys in Belgium. We got a guy in Sweden, we have a guy in, so they're all over the world. It's just a matter now of how do we try to consolidate that to one, just monitor our playing player pool, and then it comes to the bigger picture. How do we compare one player to the other based on style of play that their club's playing, based sure. on all those different factors. How they fit into Greg's it. system, which is another thing that exactly. you need to be aware of. Like, yep. you know, are they potentially good enough to bring into camp? And then do we let them battle it out? I, it is easier if they're former U.S. national team stars, and that, or at least that's who their dad is, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the one good part about us is that we're not spending $40 million on a transfer. We're spending a, fl a plane ticket and a hotel to see this guy play. So we do have a little bit of a luxury. I know there's people probably losing sleep over who they're going to sign and, and when they're going to sign them. Um, so we do have a little bit of luxury in that, but just trying to, one, monitor our player pool to figure out, because there's also the dual national thing. I mean, I don't know how many times Greg's come into the office and said, hey, this guy's not on a list. And you go online and you can't figure out where he, where he was born, where he's from. It's like, yeah, there's a reason why he's not on the list. There's no facts that say. So we get that all the time. It's just trying to constantly build out that player pool that we can continue to monitor. Cool. Got a lot of questions from uh, Twitter here. Um, so I'll throw, 
first one your way. A lot of the soccer analytics that I've seen is focused on team play or field players and not goalies. Does that notion hold true for your team? If not, what type of analytics have you all implemented for goalkeepers? I can answer that you question. You have the best answer on this, on this panel. Um, on this one. We study <laughs> our goalies a lot. Um, so, um, just really short, we have um, a biomechanics lab in which we can basically see uh, every movement, how much power the player is putting in, uh, how he's performing uh, his skills. So you're right, a lot of the analytics that we do is on where did they do it, how often do they do it, and how successful was it. But because we are a club that relies highly on our youth, it's also for us very important on how do they actually do it. How, why are they so skilled? Why is the skill so good? And for a goalkeeper, we found out that um, our goalkeepers weren't that fast, especially from, for shots from close by. And we had a new goalkeeper, Andre Onana, who also, he was fast, but he also showed a very different technique to take those shots, like diving to those shots, than the other goalkeepers that had been brought up uh, through like the traditional Dutch and Ajax school. So we were about to say like, hey, you're doing it wrong, we're gonna teach you how you should do, do this, but then we actually measured that he was doing it the fastest of everyone. So we thought maybe not telling him how to do it, but learning how he's doing it. And um, we did a big study on all our goalkeepers um, and even did some goalkeepers from other clubs um, to, seeing how, to see how they prepared for a shot. And we actually found out that the stance width was a lot uh, better with this player and that we actually, if we applied that to the other players, they improved immediately, which is actually strange within your study because usually you would expect, um, except from the learning effect, um, that they would do worse because it's weird to them. Um, and after training, they actually did a lot better. So we actually improved their technique, um, looking at one of the new keepers coming in and uh, finding out their, um, their diving safe technique. Um, so that was one. Other things that we do is like gaze behavior, what are goalkeepers looking at before they, uh, they decide which way to go. So um, yeah, we did quite some, uh, some research on the goalkeepers. It's actually also um, published, so if you want to look hmm. it up, it's on uh, Roni Ibrahim, and it's a whole list of goalkeeper papers. Cool. Uh, next question from Twitter. How big a part does recruiting analytics play at Ajax and uh, Toronto FC in the transfer market and for the U.S. Soccer Federation for player selection? Um, it, you know, it's re recruitment, I think, is a, the place where you can provide a majority of your value as an analyst at a club, right? Um, it, it's, uh, well, I think you can make definitely some impact in terms of, you know, opposition analysis, ring game strategy. I think that's really, you know, you're, you're dealing with really 1% there, where, where you'd actually be considerably more efficient in terms of how you um, you know, uh, approach um, recruitment. You know, one example I like to get, you know, I'd like to give is, you know, it's really hard to, you know, pick which games to watch on a player, right? You know, say, you know, you're looking at a particular player, they have, you know, you've got a video of a hundred of their games, right? Like, how do you pick those, right? So say if you have a system that ranks those, you know, through some sort of automated fashion, right? Like this was their worst game and this was their best game, right? I can start to watch a game here, a game here, a game here, and a game here, right? Or if I was just doing this completely randomly, I could very accidentally watch five games from their, you know, better half or five games from their worst half and get a much worse sort of um, you know, uh, sample of that player's performance, right? Um, so it's not just about you know, evaluating how good the player is, it's also helping us evaluate like, which games to watch and how do we you know, give our, how do we stretch our scouting resources as far as possible? 
And like the, the transfer budget and your wage budget is often like 80% of your entire you know, revenue spent expenditure. So as, as Ian Graham says, it's not marginal gains. It's just like flat out, this is where you need to spend a lot of time because that's where all of the, the cost is. Yeah. And, and I think you know, what's, what's really kind of funny about the whole thing, and, and I think analytics are getting a lot of attention in soccer right now, largely through the tracking data is really sexy, right? You know, um, where, but the problem is with the tracking data, that's largely not for recruitment, right? Well, a large percentage of the value that's gonna be provided is through event data, it's through recruitments, right? And it's, it's kind of funny because I think so much of the media and so much of the attention has been on the tracking data, and, and tracking data is great. You know, it's, it's fun, it's really exciting, and I, I think it's great for telling certain stories, but a majority of the value is that we're gonna produce is actually on this other set of data. Actually, I think for us, it's, it, it helps ask questions, um, especially for the fringe players. Obviously, in any national team environment, your top players are going to pick themselves. Um, but when you start looking at, okay, who is an option as a six? Who's an option to play outside back if we have injuries? Who's another option in the league that we can possibly call in? So it's to, to ask those questions and to also see where they compare to whoever your first choice is. Um, but it's also to answer, do we think a player should be playing as the 10 or the 7? Or, or to start looking at some of that aspect too. So we use it to a lot of the times um, when we're looking at players on number 19, 20, 21 of our roster who we think is going to get called in, there's always a question mark there. Do we take the younger guy that we may not have seen very much or do we take the older guy because he has a potential to be effective? So I think it's a balancing act of trying to figure out and answer those questions um, in a way that can hopefully help the coaching staff. Well, I think you said that you you used it with the penalty side stuff too in order to, to help determine who's important. And that's training data. And, and all of us have like pretty strong opinions about training data and the value of it and how it helps you really enhance what doesn't exist in, in the game data. But you know, it's, it's something that, that you guys have definitely applied and used yeah. to some success. For sure. We have about one minute. So I'm gonna, there's a question here for Bosa. Uh, does the IX Youth Academy utilize analytics at the same level of the first division team? Basically, yes. So everything we do with the first team is also possible to do with the youth academy. And I actually have to say that a lot of what we do uh, focuses on the youth because you have a lot more time with them to actually change stuff. So things about basically everything we do in the movement lab, changing technique, or like trying to take the best learning method for that, or things like gaze behavior that we look into, um, that makes a lot more sense to do that in the youth because you have time with them to improve it, or with the first team, especially if you're in like two matches a week schedule, there's so limited time to do something like that in your training. Um, and on the first team level, it is a little bit more of the analytics and opponent scouting and all those kind of things, which don't come in with the youth that much. Um, so we do it for under 19s, but not below that. So then you, you still have your like load management and tracking, and we try to align the teams as much as possible in terms of physical preparation. Um, but yeah, there's like this different aspects of the analysis that you do over different age groups. I wish we could stay here for another hour because I'm really enjoying this conversation, but our time is up. Thank you so much, guys, for this. Uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.